Hello, product innovators. Today, we learn from the global head of design and brand experience at a large multinational on the importance of ESG in a hardware startup. You're listening to the Product Startup Podcast, the show that helps bring your product idea to life by chatting with successful inventors, product developers, manufacturers, and hardware industry professionals. Our goal here is to get to the bottom of what makes a product successful, from initial idea to getting your product on store shelves. We're taking you step-by-step to build a functional product and scale your product business. Hosted by Kevin Mako, one of North America's leading experts Experts on hardware development for small product businesses. Now, onto the show. Welcome back, everyone. Today, I'm very excited to introduce Joss Harrison to the show. Joss is the global head of design and brand experience at Ricket, the firm which owns many big brands, including Lysol, Veet, Finish, Jurex, and more. He's been in the design industry for over 25 years. Today, Joss is going to share some valuable knowledge on how inventors, startups, and small manufacturers can learn what ESG is, why doing good for the world is beneficial for an emerging hardware product, and how to start with implementing ESG in your emerging or scaling business today. Now, on to the episode. Hey, Joss. Welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Well, much appreciated being on. You know, it's always great to hear how some of the biggest brands in the world are doing great things. And today we're here to talk about ESG, which we'll define later, uh, of course, but uh, it's all about doing good for the world via your products and your product businesses. So looking to hear how some of the best brands in the world do it. Many of the companies that are obviously part of Reckit, which Reckit owns and distributes many brands, which people know, which will they'll have in their household today. So I'm excited to learn more about ESG and how that works and how it can apply to hardware startups and hardware scale-ups. But first and foremost, how did you get to the position that you're in today? It's a long road. Let's put it that way. I've ended up in various parts of the design industry over the years, working in spaces, kind of creating public spaces, creating private spaces, uh, designing small-scale experiences. I worked in confectionery for a while, and so kind of snacks and the stuff that makes us all smile. And uh, more recently, 15 years or so now, working at a, a much higher level kind of on branding, building brands. And that's kind of led to what we now think of in, in our organization, Reckit, as brand experience, which is effectively managing the, the toolkit that our brands use to direct all of their activity in building a coherent and ongoing experience with their users. The objective, of course, being finding a way to make the brands so useful to people and so relevant that they are prepared to advocate and recommend to their peers and buy into or associate with the brand over a long period of time. Uh, And of course, that's what makes the brand both loved, but also powerful and influential and able to have a a positive effect. That's amazing. Talk a bit about uh, what Reckitt does and some of the actual brand names that folks would know. Reckitt is a a very large or global scale CPG, consumer packaged goods or FMCG, fast moving consumer goods company. We have a, a, a large scale operation, but we own a number of brands that we we operate, some cases globally, some cases in individual countries or regions. So brands that people perhaps will be familiar with are Lysol in North America. It's a huge brand, of course, particularly top of mind over the last couple of years. Also some of our over-the-counter healthcare brands, uh, again, North America, Musex and, uh, and Delsim. But we also operate a number of brands in the rest of the, the home care space, things like Finish for dishwashing and Airwick for air care and, and kind of mood management in, in your home. But also through other geographies, we, we have equivalent brands or similar brands to Lysol. We have a brand called Detol in the rest of the world. And we, uh, we also have uh, brands in, in sexual well-being like Durex and KY. 
more recently, Queen V added to the portfolio. Some very cool stuff that has a role to play in most people's lives at some point or another, and very often in day-to-day living. You're the global head of brand experience and design there, which means you've got to see a lot of these different brands, both as they are emerging and as you're developing them. So let's talk about how they apply to ESG and how ESG is important for startups and scale-ups and how they can actually do ESG well, even at the early phases of their business. Why don't we just start with defining it? What is it? Yes. So ESG is really a lens through which to focus business activity because businesses have the opportunity to have a huge impact on the world. And it's the larger the business, of course, or the more influential the business, the greater the effect. So we have to make a conscious decision to make that effect a positive one. So ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance. And the areas, as you can probably imagine from the description, environmental is a massive consideration for for everyone in any kind of business. Social, similarly, the the influence that your products and services have on people, whether in small social units or, or much larger ones, can be huge. And then governance is more linked to kind of regulatory and registration of certain types of products and the way we work, the way we manage our workforce and that of the other companies that we work with. So governance is a kind of very broad scope of are we operating in an ethical and sustainable way, perhaps. So the the two bigger areas, perhaps, especially for startup businesses and, and scale-up businesses, the notion of, of environmental sustainability, so long-term, are the activities of the business, enabling that business to continue to have a, a role to play in the world 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. And then social, actually, you could apply the same question. Is the brand or the business enabling an equitable and meaningful social evolution over that same period of time? Is it enabling people to participate in society in a productive way? Is it enabling people to kind of live their best life, if you like? I love the expression. And that has to be the the way that we think about doing business in coming years. I think the world faces a number of enormous challenges, some of which are environmental, some of which are social, that businesses, brand owners, tech providers all have a, a potentially enormous role in hopefully improving. What I love about this and why I think it's really important for everybody, even in the early stage of their business to listen to this topic today is because it's beyond just a whole feel-good philosophy. This isn't just about saying, yeah, I want to do a business that's great. This actually affects the bottom line. We're seeing, and right now we're talking to somebody who represents one of the biggest brands, many big brands, many large brands worldwide. These are big corporations that have deep pockets that are very much geared towards profit but they also understand the value of doing good for the world, not just in the feel-good attitude, but knowing that that actually will affect the success and the longevity of your business. And it, in turn, it affects the bottom line. So Absolutely. even if you are just got your head down, you're trying to build your hardware product, you're trying to get it to market, it's important to think of this because these factors, we're seeing it being done as a number one core priority at huge brands. So if they're doing it, then you as a startup who is emerging as a new brand about to make your own uh, cultural identity in the world, it's even more important than ever. It really is. I think as a, as a brand owner or as a, as a business, whether you're massively established or whether you're just setting out, it's being clear about your purpose. What is the, the role that your business is going to play in the world? And projecting that forward to understand how can your business help to enable conditions that will mean you still have a business 
30 years from now. So if you think about some of the environmental challenges we face, how can your brand or business have a positive effect on the availability of fresh water, for example, or the reduction in plastic that we we know is a, is a big issue for people or reduction in carbon generation or particularly carbon dioxide and, and other sort of greenhouse gases. What, what are the activities you're your business can take on that will ensure its longevity and ensure its continued growth in a world where drawing out vast quantities of raw materials perhaps is something we need to reduce and the generation of carbon dioxide is something we need to vastly reduce and so on. So this this principle of ESG as a, as a sort of shorthand lens to apply to your business really is about ensuring you have a business in the future. And that has to be through having a positive effect on the world, whether it's environmental or social or, or otherwise. So I think for young businesses, it becomes increasingly important because carving out your space in the world in a often very crowded markets where perhaps there are very large brands and large entities like ours, but also a plethora of other smaller potential competitors, understanding what you stand for, being super clear about it, being able to articulate that to your user base or your potential user base, and being able to implement that thinking into your business model. So the way you generate and develop products, the way you bring them to market, the way you continue to iterate the innovation pipeline of your particular platform or multiple platforms, whatever it might be, they should all play into that core purpose and should all have a contributive effect on the, the positive change you expect to make in the world. Very well said. I think this all comes down to the fact that consumers are more sophisticated than ever. The web is connecting information and your user base will prefer to buy from a brand that they trust that is looking out for the world as opposed to a brand that they believe is just strictly for profit and with yes. no other tangible benefit, right? Oh, so yes. that's why yeah. you know I originally yeah. opened with the, it all comes down to the bottom line. Well, it's indirect, but there's still a pathway to it. And one of those pathways is very clear, very upfront. It's what are you doing for the environment? What are you doing for the world, which is the social part of it? And of course, governance plays into, well, how, how do you make sure that that happens over time and, and grows? Uh, something that I find pretty amazing just to kind of prove this point or nail it home is the fact that uh, you and I could have talked about a lot of things today. And the one thing that you said you really want to talk about because it's a main priority for for your company and the brands that you represent is ESG. And that was before any other thing that we talked about that we could have. So it just goes to show that how much of priority this element is more than probably ever before in human history, uh, at least over the last few hundred years. Yeah, I don't, I don't think by any means you're overstating that, that it is more important now than it's ever been before, and potentially more than it will ever be again, because we're at a, a, a crucial tipping point, particularly environmentally. But I think we also see it in the social sphere. There's all sorts of mistrust in, in certain governments, certain non-governmental organizations. And I think people increasingly look to uh, certainly large corporations, but also small brand owners and startups are just as relevant to, to drive equitable agendas, whether that's better for the planet, whether it's better for people. And that sort of shift in expectation, as you mentioned earlier, comes through such a vast array of, of touch points that people's expectations of that brand, the way it shows up, how, where, with what, are vastly more sophisticated than we've ever seen before. I think particularly we see this in, in our industry, our entire FMCG or CPG industry is based on the manufacture of billions of individual things, you know, that we, I mean, we even call people consumers. There's something else we need to kind of move away from really is this notion of 
consumption. We don't exist to consume. And yet the, the brands that we've built over 100 plus years actually are there to solve a problem. They're not there to simply be consumed. They're there to solve a problem that exists as a fundamental human truth. So how can we reflect the needs of tomorrow and, and the day after in the way our brands show up and, and solve problems? This is a, is a big shift that our industry needs to undergo, which is the move from solely consumables, manufacturing those billions of things, to solutions through partly service provision, partly information provision, maybe generating some of the solutions in home so that you're not shipping around lots and lots of things. So I think it's, it's super relevant for an audience who are largely concerned with building or making things, you know, elements of, of hardware, whether they're kind of tech containing or, or otherwise, are always a solution. They're always designed and built because they solve a problem. So how can we make those things part of a a larger scale solution rather than uh, simply solving the, the individual problem perhaps that they're initially being designed for to, in our case, disinfect or sanitize a surface or freshen a room or clean your plates and dishes. How do we ensure that they contribute to something bigger? How do we ensure that their kind of chemical makeup is such that it's not doing any harm? And in fact, hopefully helping to regenerate certain aspects of the immediate environment where they're made. Uh, how do we ensure that the packaging materials used are entirely recycled or entirely recyclable or ideally both and that we're reducing them anyway. So there's all sorts of considerations that hardware designers and producers can build in to have that greater effect than simply solving the problem that is the reason for the product to exist in the first place. Those are really good ideas as well. Not just the concept overall, that's brilliant, but the some of the ideas that you brought up, and I think we should drop into those a little bit more. Uh, especially if we're an emerging hardware brand, looking at some of those low-hanging fruit ways that you as a small product startup can already start thinking forward. One of them that you mentioned in manufacturing is materials. That is yes. one of the easiest things to do. We, as a design firm, we look at this constantly. So we can design something and then simply make a choice. Is this plastic housing going to be out of recycled plastic or is it going to be out of new plastics? It can be literally that simple. Of course, sometimes it can be much more complex. Maybe there's not a solution that is sustainable or that is environmentally friendly. So you have to do some work researching what that might be or what an alternative solution might be. But if you start thinking about that, even from your early design ages, we can actually do the industrial design, the mechanical engineering, the electronic engineering in such a way that we're thinking about sustainability from the onset. And a lot of the time, it's simply making a decision, especially with something so easy as material swaps, especially in plastics. Most of the time, especially in today's material selection, most of the time we can find something that very closely matches the property that we were looking for, but has some elements of sustainability or environmental friendliness or future sustainability or the ability to be regrown or you name it. There's a lot of options out there, but I'd like to hear it from your side. Uh, what are some of the things that you see maybe in design or even into manufacturing that you think are low-hanging fruit or ideas that can be implemented early for hardware startups that are starting to go through the development process or looking to maybe build a sustainable version of their line going forward? So one of the things that I, I touched on briefly, I think, as I was talking earlier, is a super important one, both for, for us as an organization at such a large scale, but also arguably even more so for people who are setting up new product streams. And that's the notion of platforms. Um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with the, the principle of establishing a platform, whether it's tech, sort of electronic tech based, or whether it's a, a chemical formula platform, or whether it's a physical mechanical solution platform that you envision 
will be iteratively improved over time. That's very much a software principle, I guess, isn't it? Kind of launch the uh, the thing that will just about do the job right now and then update it every three months. Even though the time frame may change, I think the principle is is really relevant to, to everyone developing a solution of any kind, is establish that future state, figure out how you're going to get there along a series of iterations or improvements that A, will educate the user as they go, so that it's an intuitive build in the functionality each time, uh, and B, require the minimum necessary addition to that proposition. So ideally, you keep the majority of the platform as is, so a chassis, if you like, and you add on or build in a small additional thing that adds the, the most relevant functionality. But the trick is then figuring out what's the relevant functionality going to be five years or 10 years from now that you need to kind of build in the facility for. Uh, but it's, it's about efficient design and manufacture. Do you know what I like about, really like about what you mentioned there? Uh, we talk about iterative design a lot on the show. We've discussed mm -hmm. it in many different ways. It is the new kind of frontier of industrial design and mechanical design for physical consumer products. But on the inverse side of what you're talking about, it puts less pressure on the hardware startup to perfect the efficiency or the environmental friendliness or the sustainability or the social implications on their first version. Yes. And I think that's the opposite side is to look at it and say, you don't have to make the perfect product up front. Start with, as you call it, the platform, which gets you that, you know, maybe your first idea, maybe it's one part of it that you said, okay, based on my resources and the amount of design work I can put into this, I can start with this. But in the future, I plan to have other ideas which may make it more and more sustainable or friendly or whatever over time. Uh, like you said, the timeline could be stretched out. Maybe it's every two years as opposed to, you know, the software every three month model or whatever it might. Maybe it's every production run. Every production run, you do some slight improvements uh, from the other one, not just on functionality, as we talk about a lot on the show, functional improvements based on user feedback, basically, let's call it ESG improvements. On the yeah. other side, it can be incremental. And what I think that does is that reduces the pressure on the startup to try and nail it out of the gate, but has it built into their business model and into their messaging and into their culture that we are a firm that will make a brand promise to continue to improve and refine this product, not just for functionality, but also for ESG along the way. Exactly right. And inherently, as you, as you think that far ahead, your ability to maintain a more sustainable proposition, whether that's a product or a service or both, is kind of built in because you're encouraging people, A, not to dispose of anything, you know, to, to keep using the thing by keeping it relevant. This is super important in our industry, as you can imagine. You know, we're, we're affecting this shift from consumables to more sustainable business models, whether they're circular and still involve some kind of product consumption, but a kind of refill or equivalent model. It's vital, really, to, to kind of have that thing that you retain, the thing that becomes of sufficient value that you want to retain it. And it continues to be updated and, and kept relevant, even as your life changes or as the society around you changes and so on. So anticipating that is is no easy feat. I'm not suggesting it's a kind of an easy thing to do, but the the time spent thinking and planning is is massively valuable. An old boss of mine used to say, first think, then run. You mentioned the concept of refillables. Are you finding that consumers are willing to spend more now to have a product that has much more longevity? Because obviously we've gone through, and I don't know exactly, we could argue this, what the time frame was be, but there was a time where everything was built very well, meant to last forever, right? We think of the, whatever, the dishwasher, right? And there's this classic example, right? And then all of a sudden it went to this model, uh, let's call it the IKEA model, where it was, okay, you buy something that's intended to be, you know, last one to three years, 
maybe more arguably, right, as, as they've evolved as well. But the reality is it, there's this massive consumer shift to pay less now, get the thing you need, and then just basically plan to repair, replace it in a very short period of time. And I know Warren Buffett was one of the early advocates to say he doesn't buy anything that he doesn't think will last at least 15 years or more. And he says, if everybody did that, you'd save a tremendous amount of money over your lifetime. Now, obviously, Warren Buffett has a few extra bucks to spend than the average <laughs> person. But I'd like to hear from your perspective, are you seeing that trend change? Are people willing to pay more now than maybe they used to 10 or 15 years ago? I think the easy answer is yes, but it, there's a but. It requires the proposition to be articulated in a way to that, that end user that helps them to understand the greater value they gain over the lifetime of that thing, whether it's an, a physical object that you continually use, whether it's a, a product that you use up and then are expected to refill. Uh, I, I think it's critical that the brand or the, the owner of the proposition, let's say, is able to, to help that individual user understand what's the benefit to me in buying into this solution over a long period of time. Now, whether that's a kind of a subscription subscription model, as we might think of it, or a refill model, whether that's buying into the platform in a hardware sense, and then potentially small add-ons or, or might be software upgrades or, or whatever that enables that greater functionality over time via some kind of subscription or, or, or so on. That's the tricky part, is helping people to understand why you're asking them to, to shell out a bit more cash up front uh, to enable this longer term additional value, certainly additional sort of usage, use cases, and more from the thing over time. And I think that's where we see it done well. Absolutely, people are prepared to, to pay a bit more for a durable thing that is going to stay relevant. Um, I guess when it if, comes to durable, there has to be a strong degree of trust built in that if they're going to... Rather than buying an item that they think is going to last three years, they're going to spend more, maybe double the price on something that you're trying to convince them is going to last, say, 10 years. But of course, trust needs to be there. And the quality of the product, and primarily based on user reviews and the brand recognition and all that, needs to be there. Otherwise, I imagine that education starts to become difficult if not done well, because if somebody doesn't trust that your product's going to last longer, they're simply going to buy the one that, that does three years and pay half the price. Right? So that's where I could see yeah. that real delicate balancing act between marketing, education, user reviews, all coming together to ensure that that quality or that system that you built really truly has that long-term value baked in, as opposed to scaring somebody off that they may just be overpaying for something that has you know equivalent abilities of another product. Well, this is exactly where that initial phase of very careful planning comes into its own for smaller businesses and, and startups. And because if you're creating something from scratch with no context that anyone is likely to recognize, and therefore you've got to try and establish that trust, thinking about your materialization, the provenance of the raw materials you're sourcing or the subassembly parts that you're sourcing, being able to articulate that to your potential user so they understand the quality and the conscious design that's gone into it and the fact that it is planned to last 15 plus years. Those sorts of things really come into their own uh, because that's what's going to build trust. And I think one of the things that perhaps smaller startup businesses have as a, an immediate advantage over the much larger, more established businesses like ours, particularly at the moment, is that people inherently understand that a startup business in today's world has come about through a need to solve a problem. And everyone in that business is bought in to solving that problem because it's the reason they started to collaborate in the first place. The reason they started to develop a solution is to solve a problem. Uh, and I think people 
genuinely sort of understand that and the advent of using social media and, and other digital platforms to both help people to understand what the thing is solving, but also how the solution is being made and is being brought to them. Combine the two, you get to a point where people, as long as you can clearly articulate it, people expect startup businesses, particularly tech and, and, and devices, to have a purpose. You know, to have, and I mean this in the larger sense, uh, you know, a positive purpose. And so I think smaller businesses can absolutely play on that. And as long as you've got your, your messaging focused and helping people to understand why your brand and product exists, what's the problem it's solving, how it's solving that problem in a way that's helping the world and helping that user, it's a, it's a win-win. Absolutely. And I think if you bring it down to, at its core level, a high quality product, it's interesting as a design firm owner, we get to choose uh, based on what the client wants. So they say, look, we want to have this product. And it's like, you, you pick the quality. Are we doing the Ferrari grade or are we doing all the way at go-kart grade? And, and it's essentially up to the client to decide. But at the end of the day, we are a huge advocate to reduce the amount of features that you put in a product. And instead, use that budget now that you've saved up to increase the quality. We're a huge yes. believer, especially with the global marketplace of near 8 billion people. Start with a high quality product, hit those must-have buyers, or hit those buyers that are very wealthy. When you have a global marketplace, that's a huge audience. Probably takes a long time to saturate as a startup. Start there, start with a quality product, and then... If you really feel like you're missing a massive part of the market, let's call it middle market or lower spending market, then start figuring out what you can sacrifice when you have more budget to figure out how to retain most of the quality while finding a cheaper manufacturing price point. And as well, you now have economies of scale, right? So this really exactly. starts to balloon. But for me, we're a huge advocate. Even if you're trying to make a tiny little widget, you know, we've got something, let's say uh, one of our old products, Omelette Spatula or Club Tea or something like that. We still really advocate to start with a high quality first product, then decide later if you really want to reduce your quality because it's very difficult to go the other way around. You can always yeah. start cutting costs, very difficult to either A, increase your price and B, very difficult to recover from a perceived brand quality if it starts low. So as a hardware startup, I would say 95 plus percent of the time, there's not usually a good argument for why you should come out with a low quality, low cost product to start. Yeah, Very rarely. I, I, I've only more. seen a handful <laughs> in my history of doing this with over a thousand products we've worked on. So yeah. it probably lands pretty similar, even at the big corporate level that you work with. Right? Very much so. Uh, once you understand who your user target is, who you're solving the problem for, then your, your job as a designer is building advocacy with that person. Can you deliver an experience that is so good through the use, well, actually the total engagement with your brand and, and product proposition. It's so good that that person wants to tell their friends about it. They wants to tell their peers about it. wants to be known as the person recommending that thing because it's such a good thing. Um, and I think that building that advocate user base is the th most critical thing you can do as a, as a business, uh, particularly starting up. Because as you said, that's the thing that's going to, uh, A, it's going to generate a degree of loyalty and over time builds you the volume that you can then leverage to achieve some of the um, economies of scale that perhaps will open up your proposition to an even wider audience. So making sure you're totally focused at the start is just Josh, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, much appreciated for your words of wisdom. Uh, there's tons of great nuggets in here. We look forward to having you back on the show again, and uh, we will talk soon. Thanks again. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Great. Take care. Bye-bye, Josh. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Product Startup Podcast. 
the show that teaches you what it really takes to bring your product to market and turn it into a big success. This podcast series is brought to you by Maco Design and Invent, the original and leading firm in North America to provide global caliber end-to-end physical consumer product development to startups, inventors, and small product business clients. If you're looking for product development help on your invention, head over to macodesign.com. That's M-A-K-O design.com for a free consultation from one of Maco Design's four design studios from coast to coast. Thanks for listening and see you next time.